At Northrop Grumman, cybersecurity is at the core of everything we do. Our cyber workforce is defining possible every day in an environment that fosters talent and rewards excellence. Northrop Grumman needs cyber professionals like you to join our team to help defend our nation and its allies. We have openings in Maryland, Northern Virginia, Cincinnati, Ohio, and Tampa, Florida. To begin your journey with us, visit our careers webpage, northropgrumman.com forward slash careers. Welcome to the Defense and Aerospace Reports Weekly Cyber Report, sponsored by Northrop Grumman. I'm your host, Vago Maradian. Later in the program, how the U.S. Air Force's Kessel Run Agile Software Development Unit played a key role in history's largest air evacuation from Afghanistan. But first, joining us is Jennifer Wallsmith, Vice President of the Cyber and Information Solutions Business Unit at Northrop Grumman's Network Information Solutions Division, the sponsor of this program. She joined the company in 2016 after three decades of service with the National Security Agency. Jennifer, thanks so very much for joining us. Thank you, Vago. Uh, and before we get started, a word from our sponsors. Bell sponsors our daily podcast. Leonardo DRS sponsors our global coverage. Uh, General Atomics Aeronautical System sponsors our coverage of strategy. And L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all domain command and control. And I, I mentioned that because we're going to be talking a little bit uh, about that. Uh, you know, I think everybody has a tendency of seeing uh, the JADC2, you know, widely regarded as critical to the future of American war fighting and sees it more as a radio or a, or a network a challenge. It's all of those pieces, but it's also at base a cyber challenge because you're effectively building a secure combat cloud. So whether or not you're calling it Project Convergence or the Air Force's Advanced Battle Management System or Project Overmatch, as it's called in the Navy, fundamentally, it, it is a combat uh, cloud. General Dave Deptula, the Dean of the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, has joined us uh, to discuss uh, the elements of what this future network needs to look like. Uh, this new administration, Jennifer, as you know, is is sort of hitting a, a maybe not a reset button, but a delay button on uh, what JADC2 is, is supposed to look like. Last week, we interviewed uh, Lieutenant General Q Hynote, uh, the Deputy Chief of Staff for Strategy, Integration and Requirements, uh, explaining the need. Hey, you know, the Secretary, Secretary Kendall is looking at uh, sort of thinking this through uh, a little bit more, looking for broader solutions of sort of cutting edge. Uh, on the commercial side from commercial industry, as well as with heritage uh, contractors. What does this solution, uh, and I should say that from your standpoint, you're looking at this, you're not the JADC2 lead for Northrop Grumman, but you are the, the cyber uh, head of that uh, effort. As people take this pause, what does JADC2 need to look like if it's to achieve the vision that the department has for the program? Let me start by uh, saying it's why our company combined cyber with networking and communications, because it's so vital to think about those things in a continuum. So radios are what need a lot of attention and they are very, very important. But however, without cyber, cyber embedded into the platform, into JADC2 and all that it's striving for, I don't think that it'll meet the operational needs of our nation. 
So how, right, I mean, you know, JADC2 is uh, each uh, person who's looking at it, right? I mean, it's a little bit like the elephant, right? I mean, it, it depends on what folks' competencies are and how they're envisioning it, right? For some, it's a radio network. For some, it's a data network. For some, it's a combat cloud. For some, it's a cyber challenge. For some, it's a, you know, better connect the radios you already have challenge, right? Uh, ultimately, what's the right way to eat this elephant, uh, and what's the key to getting it right? Because right now, each of the individual services have challenges, and then the joint force has challenges, and it's not, nobody's really in charge of this at this point, right? Each of the services are doing their thing, and we're hoping everything's going to connect, and each one of them has different emerging, changing requirements, right? What's, what's the right way to do this if we want to succeed? So unfortunately, I don't think there is one way to eat the elephant. I, I think it's going to take a few tenants underneath the umbrella, but each will have to be tailored to what you're trying to affect. And so what do I mean by that? I think you must have an open architecture for anything that you're doing moving forward. And it has to be built on a technology base that is modern. I'm going to get a little technical. I'm going to say microservices based. I think it has to be built with a digital fabric because that digital fabric is what's going to allow us to move quickly and, and cost effectively. And so those are two important tenants that we have to use when we approach this. But then each set of acquisitions is different. And that's why I say there isn't one way to take a bite at this elephant. I think it is going to have to be a distributed implementation, right. but one that's tailored to each of the assets with a few governing tenants. Um, what is microservices based, by the way, for uh, those in the audience who don't understand what that is? It's a set of software services, and, and it's one that allows us to plug in play. And that's just in a simple way, non-technical way to think of it as something that can be changed rapidly right. uh, as technology changes. And obviously, right, I mean, one of the things that the department is looking at, uh, you know, as, as senior leaders have talked about it, right, I mean, they'll take a cell phone out of their pocket and be like, look, you know, this is a resilient self-forming network, right? It, it comes from commercial sources. There is a lot that we can draw off of architectures like this in, in trying to uh, build whatever it is that, that we're ultimately trying to build. How, what's, what's the right approach to try to secure this network, right? I mean, because we're finding, uh, and I have a question I'm going to ask you about this in a moment, as you know, uh, that that talks about the fundamental vulnerabilities that are built into this system. I mean, most, most of the system is not with secure chips, right? We have a lot of commercial chips, a lot of commercial software, a lot of publicly available software that's in our system. So we have a whole series of vulnerabilities across the piece. Um, and, and that doesn't even go to uh, you know, getting a brand new aircraft from a production line somewhere and then plugging it into a 15-year-old maintenance computer and infecting it, or, or a weapon that's infected goes on the wing of one of these airplanes. How do we have to think about the security element of this and building it in from the beginning and then managing to migrate it out, you know, mi migrating it out across the force to make sure that all the nodes that are connecting to this are equally secure? 
So I'm going to give you three things that I believe are important as you think about building out this architecture. The first I would say is we need to have cyber in the discussion at the forefront of whether we're talking requirements or architecture or just fundamental principles. It cannot be a bolt-on. Okay, It's one that we have to think about as we go through our um, conversation. The second I would tell you is we need this to be digital. Digital is going to allow us to then apply tools at speed, tools that can look to see has something been tampered with, tools that are adept at um, identifying vulnerabilities, whether it's while we're in development or while we're flying. And so that's really important. And then the third aspect that I would say in, in all of this is operational resilience. And, and what do I mean by operational resilience? I think fundamentally coming back to JADC2, that's a very important aspect of JADC2 is we're not, we're not relying on a single node. It, it is one that we have a federated set of nodes. And so we need to make sure that we have backup, failover, a mechanism that we can operate in a mesh network that we can count on one another. I think those are your three important tenants. I think there are a lot of specific things that you can do relative to cybersecurity, but we're just not taking it um, as seriously in the requirements right now or in the procurements right now. We have a lot of discussion in Washington about the importance of cyber. We see it in the news, we see it uh, in our day-to-day -day lives. But when it comes down to the procurements, and I think this has been said and studied, it's not showing up. And I think we've got to correct that. Let me pull on that uh, a little bit. Chris Cleary, uh, the Navy's principal cyber advisor, was our cyber report guest from uh, the Navy League show uh, in August. And one of the things that he talked about, and we've heard others on this program talk about this uh, as well. We talked to Mark Montgomery a little bit last week, uh, the Cyber Solarium Executive Director. And, and one of the things that uh, they've said is that we aren't taking this as, as, as seriously. You know, we're not making that kind of investment in the existing systems and shoring them up uh, from vulnerabilities that we know are glaring and that any adversary is likely uh, to, to exploit. What's the philosophical approach, Jennifer, we need to actually be able to ta uh, tackle this? You know, there is a tendency of wanting to buy the new equipment, and that's terrific. Everybody knows how important the B-21 is, but at the same time, we have a lot of vulnerable systems that are sitting on our ramps that are, you know, in the Army inventory, uh, AUSA is week after next. Um, you know, what are, what's the approach we fundamentally need to address the glaring vulnerabilities in software and hardware that we actually have today? Well, having been someone in government procurement, I don't want to ever say it's easy. It's not. It's also not easy when it comes down to funding trades. So that's really important that I acknowledge up front. But with that said, if, if it is important, then we have to make room for it in the requirements. And, and we have to then 
signal that it's important in a way in our acquisition strategies. And, and that's what needs to happen to begin to then see the changes. I think it's really important what you bring out is that it, it can't just be the future. The future is very important, but it also has to be today. Unfortunately, we don't know when our nation might be under attack that it's called upon and, and we need to shore up these vulnerabilities quickly. Um, speaking about shoring up vulnerabilities, we've got uh, about a minute or, or, or so left. Um, the NDAA uh, is wending its way through com- uh, Congress. Um, as I said, Mark Montgomery joined us last week to kind of give us a kind of a soup to nuts on where uh, we stand on, on cyber uh, regulation. When, when you look at the measure, what do you see as positive or less positive or things uh, that you both think are opportunities or uh, anything else as this legislation moves through the pipe? You're somebody who's had decades of experience pouring over uh, congressional uh, language, uh, uh, given, given your past roles uh, in, in government. What, what do you see there that's, that's positive, useful, uh, and moving the ball down the field from a cyber perspective? So, so I'd say it's all positive. And it's all positive because we are taking action. And that's so encouraging to see and, and so hard to do. Uh, so so I, my hat's off to those that um, in the backdrop of very raging, important debates that are happening, they're still able to affect the positive momentum that we need in this current NDA. And I think that's fabulous. Jennifer, thanks very, very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. And looking forward to seeing you uh, week after next at the uh, Association of the United States Army's annual conference and trade show in Washington, D.C. Thanks so very much. Thank you, Vago. And a brief word from our sponsors, Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage, General Motors Defense sponsors our technology coverage, 321. And a brief word from our sponsors, Fincantieri Marinette Marine sponsors our naval coverage, General Motors Defense sponsors our coverage of technology, and L3 Harris sponsors our coverage of joint all-domain command and control. While the American withdrawal from Afghanistan continues to be debated, including by lawmakers yesterday when senior uniformed leaders testified before the Senate, the withdrawal of more than 120,000 in what ranks as the largest airlift evacuation in history is widely seen as a triumph. One key element of that success was agile software developed by the Air Force's Kessel Run, formerly known as the Air Force Lifecycle Management Center's Detachment 12. The Slapshot software helped speed turnaround times for aircraft uh, on the ground from minutes to mere seconds. On August the 28th, more than 21,000 were evacuated in a single day, which stands as a record. Additionally, Slapshot helped streamline passenger manifests, uh, a critical consideration given the volume of the traffic and also given the Air Force wanted to know who exactly was getting on their airplanes for evacuation. Joining us today is Kessel Run's commander and CEO, United States Air Force Colonel Brian uh, Beachkovsky. Sir, thanks so very much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Look forward to the conversation. It's an absolute pleasure. I want to uh, go to the question of um, how you guys move so fast, right? So what is Slapshot first? Um, and, and why was it so important in this application? Because time and again, in these kind of major operations, we find that actually big things hinge uh, or can be helped by, by seemingly small process 
uh, or software uh, ch changes. Talk to us about Slapshot and why it was so important. Yeah, thank you. The uh, the the name Slapshot it gives a, a bit of a hint at, at what the intent is. So uh, when you have specific tasks and assets uh, in an in an air planning scenario, uh, they they call those pucks. Uh, and and uh, as you move them around in the planning process, uh, where those missions fit in time and space, uh, those those movements are. Uh, or the collection of pucks is called uh, the rink. Uh, so Slapshot is, is actually uh, indicative of, of trying to speed up that process of how you match uh, air assets uh, to specific missions and tasks uh, and, and make that happen uh, more easily for the, the planners in the air, air operations center. Uh, so what we do is, is create uh, a suite of applications uh, that take that all the way from our friendly order of battle, what are those uh, Air Force assets we have, uh, all the way through publishing the air tasking order and the air control order. So Slapshot is, is kind of the nexus where all those come together. Uh, it's where the missions are assigned and allocated uh, to different uh, airspaces uh, at different times. You match uh, those up with, uh, uh, with particular commander intent missions. Uh, and you can uh, and, and put those together in a way that that makes the air plan uh, happen. Uh, so we were working with the 609th AOC, which is the, the Air and Space Operations Center there in, in uh, uh, CENTCOM, and have been working with them on, on their steady state operations, which was 20 to 30 missions a day. Uh, so we were working on, on ways to make that planning process easier when the NEO operation happened. Uh, that particular operation meant that the, the number of missions on a particular day went up by about 10 times. Uh, and that caused performance issues uh, in Slapshot. So loading times when they were trying to load the website to, to be able to do the work went from a handful of seconds to uh, over, uh, over three to five minutes some, sometimes. Uh, and that's unacceptable, it becomes unusable. You can imagine trying to uh, check your Gmail and if it took three minutes to load the website, you just, you just turn it off and walk away. Uh, so when, when we got those first reports in from, uh, from the, the folks in the uh, ops center, uh, we brought our SRE teams, which is a site reliability engineering team uh, and our devs together to look and see what are uh, the causes of the problems? What could we do to immediately remediate? Uh, and then what could we do to change the code uh, to be able to uh, improve that cycle? Uh, so within 12 hours, we were able to reallocate the amount of, of uh, computing resources allocated to them and push new code uh, that fixed uh, those, those load time issues. Uh, so, so at the end of the day that the problem was first realized, we had back in production for our users uh, code that brought that down from minutes to just seconds to be able to load the website and do the mission planning. That's extraordinary. And right, your, your motto, uh, which I love, is, is code deploy uh, and when you were created a couple of years ago in order to be able to do not, not just agile software uh, for uh, you know, crisis applications, but, but in general, um, get the entire Air Force software enterprise to move uh, at the speed of, of, of relevance um, and, and to keep it trying to, and to do it as, in as current and as secure uh, a way as possible, right? And this is important, whether for a future humanitarian crisis or, or, or a full-up war. What was the key, what, what, what are you finding over the last couple of years, Colonel, that are the keys 
to delivering that kind of speed of, of being able to come in and diagnose a challenge, right? I mean, even in the dial-up era, a couple of minutes to get your, you know, your, your, your mail downloaded would have been the end of the internet, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, what, what are the keys to speed ultimately? Uh, so I, th- I think the, the first thing is it has to be centered on the user. So having user empathy and really understanding how the users uh, will use your software, which quite frankly may be different than it's intended, uh, but they're using it in a way that adds the most value to their, uh, to their uh, uh, processes. So, so keeping an eye on what the users are doing with the software and listening to them as they give you feedback on how it's working in uh, in doing that in an empathetic way that doesn't say you're using the software wrong, right? Just observing how it works and then, and then working quickly to be able to uh, continue to add value to the user uh, process. Uh, so, so once you have the user focus, then there are some other tools that make it happen. One is bringing in a continuous integration, continuous deployment methodologies into the software development uh, uh, process uh, so that we are making lots of small changes and continuously integrating those back into the code base and, and continuously deploying those uh, to, uh, to the production environments. So across all of our environments and our, our uh, applications, uh, we average about five and a half uh, pushes to prod every day. So there are five changes wow. to our software uh, being done every single day. Uh, and, and that's the kind of speed. Uh, we, don't, uh, we don't have a different tempo by which we respond uh, in emergencies. Every single day we're, we're pushing to, to prod and, and having those uh, integrations happening uh, every single day. So that's that's one key is to always work fast, always realize that the world is moving and, and you need to be at that speed of relevance. The security piece is an important piece of this. And historically, right, I mean, people go to software banks uh, and grab software to patch something if they or, or do something. Uh, and often, right, uh, bad actors produce really, really good software for these uh, public uh, publicly available uh, software directories, uh, in part because they want people to install backdoors on their software, right? I mean, so sometimes speed and security are very hard to do. You're all about speed with security. How do you make sure that all of this stuff is secure as you're pumping it out at, at extraordinarily fast cycles? Yeah, uh, and and you're, what you're touching on there is, is uh, when you uh, pull in dependencies or you pull in uh, software uh, or, or have dependencies on outside developed software, uh, you, you need to understand the risks that you're inheriting with that. Uh, the way we, we work that is our, our authority to operate, uh, which means our, that we are meeting the security requirements, is, is based on how we deliver software as opposed to uh, uh, it being what that particular software looks like. So we don't uh, review one piece of software for how it fits. We look at is the way we're building software uh, a secure way of building it. Uh, and that means uh, we still do those security scans, right? So our release pipeline, we have uh, what's called SecRel pipeline. It's a security release uh, where our code gets scanned and looks for vulnerabilities. Uh, we also monitor our environments to make sure that we know uh, who's on our environment, what they're doing. Uh, so we, we both have uh, a, a practice of uh, securing the way we do development, but then also making sure that we scan every piece of code that goes through our pipelines into uh, 
uh, into our different environments, whether that's our dev environment or all the way through production. Uh, so we have, uh, we have that focus on security built in. Uh, in fact, last year, we, we took a focus period of about three months where we uh, went back and reviewed how our team looks at security, uh, ways we can build uh, apps more securely, taking some best practices from industry, including uh, well-architectured applications, uh, and, and pull those into our practices. So it's a continuous evolution of how we do our development to bake security into everything we do. Um, what you are uh, doing is uh, driving culture change, right? As we heard from the chief last week from uh, CQ Brown at uh, AFA was we have embers of change. We have all of these organizations that are doing it. We have to like sort of get them in to, to become bonfires. Part of that is right, rapid lessons learned and, and incorporate them on a daily basis uh, and be adaptive and be changing, uh, changing your processes, right? I mean, as you said, you know, you, part of your job is to go in and look at, wait a minute, how are they actually using this software uh, as opposed to how I may have envisioned them using the software, right? Uh, how, how, how are you getting, how are you engineering culture change to be more adaptive, more responsive, more agile, um, right? Because ultimately this, this can't just work if it's in pockets in Kessel Run. Kessel Run, AFWorks, and a number of these other institutions are all designed to fan this broader sort of cultural culture change across the, across the service. Talk to us about how you're engineering and touching people and changing culture in ways that go beyond sort of detachment 12. I'm really proud of our values that we have. And we, we talk about our, our uh, Kessel Run values quite a bit. Um, and, and they are having a, a, a focus on our users, having a bias for action, uh, ideas above rank and continuous evolution. And I think I can answer your question by, by pulling all those together. I've already talked about the focus on users. So uh, once we understand what the users need, that's where the ideas above rank come in. The, the, I, the best idea doesn't come from the person at the top of the organizational chart, doesn't come from the person with the biggest paycheck. Uh, the best idea uh, can come from anyone. And being able to have the psychological safety so that the person who has an idea of how we can fix that user problem needs to be free and open to uh, put that idea forward and have it, uh, have it uh, be uh, exposed to countering opinions. So we get, we get a diversity of opinions coming into our practice. Uh, that's really important. That psychological safety that anyone with an idea of how to fix the user need has that ability to speak up and push forward uh, or to say, maybe there's a better way we can do it than, than what the boss said. Uh, that's critical. Uh, and, and reinforcing that every day is really important. Uh, but then it moves into bias for action. So you have these, you have these ideas. Uh, we, sh we shouldn't sit around and, and think about uh, uh, what are potential other ways we can do it? You, you just try something. Uh, there's, a, there's a phrase that's used in software quite a bit in innovation, which is try everything, uh, test everything, uh, find out, get data, figure out what works, what doesn't. But the worst thing you can do is, is choose nothing. So we take those ideas, we have a bias reaction to put them out there, uh, but you can't just act without knowing whether or not you're making things better. And that's where the continuous evolution, you have to collect data, you have to get that user feedback to understand whether or not uh, it's working, what's working best and continually adapt and change and improve every single day. Uh, so I think the way we focus on it through our values is exactly 
the right way to do it. It means that you're never done. You're never sitting steady. You never declare victory, but you have to always test your assumptions and, uh, and know that you can always be better. You could look at this from the standpoint of uh, the Air Force's central commander, Lieutenant General Guillaume, who we talked to earlier this year. He actually took a risk in this, didn't he? So part of this is commander's willingness to take risk with a new software and a new application being used for the first time in a major operation. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. We have been working with uh, the 609th and the 9th Air Force under General Guillaume for some time on on uh, their normal steady state operations and getting that feedback. And it would be really easy for a commander in that moment to say, we should fall back to the legacy systems that we know uh, and have more familiar familiarity with. Uh, so I think General Gio and the 609th uh, as a whole deserve a lot of credit for uh, leaning forward and in, in that moment saying, uh, we are willing to uh, use the new systems and use this as a learning moment and have the belief that uh, it will be able to support. And that decision was put to the test when, when those loading times went up over a minute. Uh, and it, it, uh, it gave us the opportunity to show that our team can also respond to the moment and bring it back down uh, to, to a couple seconds of loading time within, within an hour. But that's, uh, that's not an easy decision to make at the beginning or to stick with when you hit that first uh, a challenge uh, on, on those loading times. But I'm super grateful that uh, uh, Colonel Kozlov, the commander at the 609th, was, uh, was willing to take that risk, and General Gio as a 9th Air Force commander did as well. Uh, it's really a testament to them uh, driving change in the Air Force as a whole. And we have uh, less than 30 seconds left. What were the lessons learned uh, from the Afghanistan evacuation that you got, right? I mean, if it's all about lessons learned, that was a, like a really big crucible test for your speed and everything else. What were the key lessons from your standpoint that'll help you in the next crisis? So I think the, the biggest one is something that we all know, that the world is uncertain, but you can never predict what the actual needs are going to be in the next crisis. Uh, so we have requirements, documents that guide where we're going, but I think the world is uncertain in the way you can uh, be most successful in that uncertain world is to move faster uh, than, than anyone else. So when, when we, I mean, you touched on it before with the, the manifesting, that was not a capability that we intentionally built in, but uh, our users realized that there is some flexibility in the software and we're able to, to use some capabilities that were intended for another purpose and use them in a way to solve uh, the, the issue that they were facing uh, in the moment. Uh, so that ability to be responsive and adapt to an uncertain and changing world is really what differentiates and, and I think uh, is the major lesson. We have to be able to adapt and change because we don't know what the next, uh, what the next challenge will bring and we have to be ready to, to do anything. Sir, thanks very much. Uh, what you guys uh, are doing is a real inspiration. Uh, thanks very much for joining us and you're welcome back anytime. We'd, lo we'd love to have you back on as one of our regulars. Thanks so very much. Oh, thanks for having me. From cyberspace to outer space, Northrop Grumman cyber technology spans all domains and all aspects of national security. We are delivering the next generation of cyber capabilities that protect our nation and its allies. Visit NorthropGrumman.com forward slash cyber to learn more.